seen up on that screen, that screen, or in your Bible on page 967. From Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For any of you who find today is your first day with us, you can probably look at me and assume that I'm not Sam Wong. Um, Sam will be speaking in a few minutes. Um, I'm very thankful that he is uh, a brave enough soul to come into your midst. Uh, So I hope uh, that uh, we'll find a wonderful experience in having him with us more often in the future. Pastor Sam has been working in this church for about seven years. So if he doesn't uh, have a pretty good clue of some of the challenges we faced as a church, then he's blind. And I'm sure that that's not the case because he's been looking carefully at everything that we've uh, had going on around us. But uh, Sam's burden is to help the church as a whole. And even as we heard the vision shared a few moments ago from Brother Henry, we... um, We've got to cooperate. We've got to work together and work with purpose. And Pastor Sam's here to challenge us today to do just that. Pastor Sam. Now, this one looks more like Sam Wong. Well, I'm telling you, this is like a dream come true to me. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say like a dream come true. This is a dream come true to me. Uh, Not seven years. Actually, I worked here for six years. And for the six years I have served at VCVC, I have always wanted, I have always longed for the opportunity to serve together with the English congregation brothers and sisters. But for some reason, I I have never had such such a chance. Uh, during my tenure at BZBC, but God's timing is just beyond my imagination. So after nine months, since I left my pastoral position at BZBC, I am now given a chance today to serve with you. And, and you might think, it's because I have spent my last nine months learning English. <laughs> and, and that's not the case, okay? I, I just hope you all know that you are all my dear brothers and sisters at BCPC, whom I love and care about. So today, I give thanks to God for this special privilege to be able to share His redemptive and His transformative words in front of you. But most of you know that my name is Sam Wong by now, I think. And, and you know what? I have never thought my name any special at all until a couple of years ago. And what happened is, I, uh, two years ago, I was invited to speak at a retreat of a church in Vancouver. 
And they sent me an email to invite me. And in the invitation email, twice, not once, okay, twice, they call me Pastor Wrong, with an R. So in order to make sure they really get the wrong pastor, I accepted the invitation. And I went to the retreat and, and speak there. And um, so, at the retreat, when I got the program book, and usually they have their speaker's name there, right? I look at the program book, and guess what? They have my last name right. It's Wong, W-O-N-G. But, then I look on the left-hand side of the last name, and it's my first name. And my first name is E-C-S-S-A-M, free alphabets. But I saw four. Yeah, well, you know, right? There is an E at the end. <laughs> so for the whole retreat, I'm past the same Wong. <laughs> and they never seemed to, to, to be able to get my name right. But the worst thing came. When I combined the two mistakes, I'm past the same wrong. <sighs> but you know what? Unfortunately, I think same wrong is probably a better description of myself than Sam Wong is. And maybe that applies to all of, all of us Christians too. Just like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. We do wrong things, or, or we do things wrong, over and over again whether with intention or not. Our problem is not only that we do wrong things or we do things wrong, but worse, that while we constantly fall short of God's glory, we trust that we are okay. We, we trust that we are pretty good. Or even, we trust that we are better than many people. And it brings me to share with you the sermon today. And the topic, the title of the sermon is sometimes, it is not that easy to look up to heaven. And you might have noticed from reading the scripture, it actually comes from the scripture, this title. So today, uh, I'm going to share with you this passage. It's recorded by the evangelist Luke the Physician in his gospel, chapter 18. And I'm going to read again. Uh, it never hurts to, to listen to the scripture one more time. Oops, can you... Can you for me. It's the battery inside. Yes. Okay. Here, here it is. So the scripture says, To some who were confident on their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable and he goes, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tenth of all I get. On the other hand, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And then Jesus goes, I tell you that this man, rather than the, the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this is the parable of Jesus. And this is probably not the most famous or most well-known parable among his parables, not like the prodigal son or the, the Good Samaritan. But still, this parable is a familiar one to, to many of us. And M- Martin Luther, he gave at least 13 sermons on this parable alone. And, and this parable is not very difficult to understand, I hope. And I'm going to ask you two questions. First, among the two characters in this parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, which one at the end is pleasing to God and is declared righteous? Which one? Tax collector, right? I mean, I, it seems that like I'm insulting your intelligence here. Right? Tax collector, we all know, right? It says in the, in the, in the scripture. But I'm going to ask you another question now. Among the two characters in this parable, to whom do you resemble more in your daily lives? To whom do you act more like in your daily lives or think more like in your daily lives? Which one? Is it the one who constantly seeks recognition or praises from others? and consider himself better than anyone else? Or is it the other one who is very well aware of his own darkness, his sinfulness, and he feels shame about it? Which one are we more like? And I'm not just asking you this question as I'm preparing this sermon. I, I constantly ask myself, which one do I act more like or think more like? For those who know me, which one do you think I'm like more? As a pastor, I have my fair share of struggles. And yes, pastors have struggles too. And, and one of my struggles is, what kind of public image should I demonstrate to my congregation? Should I develop a public image that shows my spiritual success and position me as a spiritual elite? So that I will be adored and I will be followed. That's not a bad thing for a spiritual leader. Or should I show you that I also have my weakness, my vulnerability? And just like all of you, I also have my struggle following Jesus' teachings in the Bible from time to time. Which image do you think I want to show you? Of course, I want to hide my weakness, my darkness, and only show off my credibility, my success. That's human nature. But the more I think about it, if I do that, I will be exactly like the Pharisee in the parable who wants to divert people's attentions on God's redemptive grace and mercy to his own righteousness and his own credibility. We, we all want to be on the right side. So after reading the parable, we all want to be like the tax collector. Right? But too often, our unconscious response becomes thank God that I am not like the Pharisee. But such reaction demonstrates that we are indeed like him. So I think today you and me and, and maybe the whole church 
we are in desperate need to face our own vulnerability, our own darkness. However, this process to face the real self, the dark side of ourselves, is very difficult. Because we have to face the self that we do not want to recognize. The self that wants to earn respect, earn recognition from our own success, from our own performance, from how good we are or how better we are. So as a result, we all share a very common problem to a certain degree. And this problem is called self-righteousness. We all have tendency to be self-righteous. So Jesus, he says this parable, and he addressed to a specific group of people. And these people are the people who were confident on their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Confident of their own righteousness can literally mean trusted. Trusted in their own righteousness. So today, in our church, do we have many of these people who who trust in their own righteousness? But you know, we, we don't want to be like that. It's not that we decide to be like that or we intend to be like that. We are shaped to be like that from, our, from the world around us. You know, we pick up at a very young age that it is all about winning. It's all about impressing. It's all about being better. And our value, our worth, our, our acceptance comes from how good we are, how better, how, how smart, how more competent we are. We are taught from the world around us that we need to trust in ourselves, that we are righteous in our own effort. But the gospel says otherwise. So back to the Bible, back to the parable. It says that two men, two men went up to the temple and prayed, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now Jesus is not talking about two men having their own private devotion. He's talking about two men who have entered into a public worship service, just like what we are having right now. So, so what type of service is assumed here? Well, the only daily um, service in the temple area is the, is the atonement offering service. That took place at dawn and also, again, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So many Jews would offer their prayers at the time of the day when the sacrifices made and the incense offering was being made in the temple acknowledging that they need the sacrifice just made for their sin to be forgiven. So this is the context of this parable. So two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So while the service is going on, says Jesus, the Pharisee, he stood and prayed by himself. And that is, he deliberately, he stands off by himself, away from the crowd. Why? Because he does not want to be contaminated by the crowd. I mean, it's not those swine flu or bird flu and all that thing, but he doesn't want to be spiritually contaminated. If he touches the clothing of someone who is ceremonially unclean, he will become defiled. So, but however, he stays close enough for the others to hear his prayers. Because it turns out 
that his prayer is meant for the ears of the people that he holds in contempt. Such a voice prayer would provide this golden opportunity for him to offer some unsolicited advice or ethical advice to the unrighteous tax collector around him who might not have another chance to observe a man like him with his outstanding piety. And, and most of us in our church life, I think, at some time or other, we have listened a sermon hidden in a prayer, haven't you? Right? I mean, I am praying for Sam. Sam, God, please help Sam to be, to be humble because he's not really humble. Like, we, we all heard sermon like that, right? The Pharisee prays. But is what he prays a really a prayer? You know, prayer, according to the piety of the first century Judaism, consists of three types. First is confession of sin. Second is thanksgiving for forgiveness. And third is petitions for my soul, for oneself and for the others. The Pharisee's prayer does not fall into any of these categories. His prayer, he does begin with, God, I thank you. But then he goes on to speak of his own accomplishments. Right? Not what God has done or is doing or will do in his life. His public remarks are an attack on the other's clothes in a self-congratulating advertisement. Rather than comparing himself to what God's expectation of him, he compared himself to others. And that's why he said, I'm not like the tax collector. But unfortunately, brothers and sisters, listen, this is what we all naturally do. That we don't compare what, compared to what God is expecting of us, but we like to compare with the people around us. We have to, to understand this parable, we have to take into account that centuries of interpretation has led us to, uh, to see the Pharisee as a very negative figure. But to Jews, the Jews listening to Jesus, Pharisees are highly respected and would have been considered righteous in their efforts to obey the Torah. The Pharisee in this parable goes beyond all requirements of the law. Fasting, for example. Fasting was required by Jews on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Although some godly people, like the, some Pharisees, they fast more often. Maybe 12 times a year, once a month. But in fasting twice a week, that's 104 times, 4 days, 104 days a year, probably on a Monday and a Thursday, and then he goes, all you can eat in between. The Pharisee, he probably viewed himself as fasting for the whole Israel. Isn't he a great man? Fasting for the whole country. And the Pharisee, he tithes all he gets. Wow. The faithful in the Old Testament, they were commanded to tithe the grain, the oil, and the wine. Not all they get. Just think about it. Just think about the ministry that could have been done in the world and for the world if God's people tithe all we get. It, it is said that there is close to one trillion untithed dollar 
in the church just in North America. One trillion, how many zeros are there? But this Pharisee, he's trying to prove something. He's trying to earn something. And he's trying to impress others. So, you get the picture. This Pharisee is attending a worship service at which a lamb is sacrificed for the sins of the people. And he stands there declaring how good he is. And that is, he stands there, declares that he does not need the sacrifice. Or he does not say that out loud, of course. But it is what he's saying. I am not like other people. I'm not like other people who need the lamb to be sacrificed. The Pharisee is at the worship service, but he is not worshipping. And the error of the Pharisee is not that he is obedient or, or he thinks he is obedient. The error of the Pharisee is that he thinks he can be obedient to God and still have disdain for the people like the tax collector. As expressed by his self-congratulation, he thinks he can fulfill what the Torah demands with no attention paid on the love command. Now, righteous acts without compassion and love are not considered righteous before God. What is righteousness, we ask? Or precisely, how? How can an unholy human being be set in right relationship with the holy God? How? And, and, and you know, by definition as interpreted by the life of Jesus, the incarnation of God's word, Jesus, a righteous person is not the one who observes a particular co- code of ethics, but rather a person granted a special relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. Let me repeat that. A righteous person is not the one who observes a particular code of ethics, but rather a person or even a community granted a special relationship of of acceptance in the presence of God. Righteousness is not about keeping rules and regulations, but about keeping faith in a relationship. Relationship with God. And such relationship is always by grace, not by credit. It's granted, not earned. So two men went up to the temple worship service where sacrifices are made so that people might relate to the holy God. And the Pharisee, by his action, he declares that he can attain such relationship with God by his own credit. And just on the contrary, Sensing his own defiled ceremonial status, the tax collector also chooses to stand at a distance from other worshippers. But of course, his his intention to stand apart was very different than the one of the the, the Pharisee. Tax collector feels that he is unworthy to be part of the service, yet he is desperate for what the service has to offer. He's a compromised man and he knows it. In Jewish culture, if Pharisees were respected, attitudes towards tax collectors were close to the end of the spectrum. He is working for the Roman oppressors. He is ripping off his fellow Jews. He's frauding them and he's 
profiting from it. Tax collectors, they bid for and they purchase rights to collect taxes and levies for a specific region. And those taxes include poll tax, uh, 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 land taxes, toll charges, sales taxes, and also maybe inheritance levies. And, and all these people, these tax collectors, they are famous, they're notorious for their dishonesty. And they're classified with murders, robbers, just like what the Pharisee said in his prayer. So modern readers like us, we must grasp how surprising, how stunning for Jesus' hearers to know that, to, to hear that, that the tax collectors was the one declared to be righteous. That would contravene everything they knew. It is also interesting, if you look at the, the parable, that the parable spans about equal lanes to describe the prayer of the Pharisee and also the prayer of the tax collector. But in contrast, most of the description of the Pharisee's prayer is about his, is, uh, the content, what he says. Whereas most of the description of the tax collector's prayer is about his posture. The normal posture to be observed while praying in the temple was to stand facing the holy place, drawing the feet together, eyes looking down, and crossing one's hand across the breast. And this posture was saying, I am your servant. You are my master. But this time, the tax collector cannot maintain this posture. Instead, he beats his chest with his fist. In the Middle East, women, they might beat their chest only in great grief. Men never do that. Men won't do that. Shame. And not just this. He would not even look up to heaven. He is shame about his own sins. And his posture shows great remorse. And then, he made a very simple line of prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. During the service, when the lamb is sacrificed, the incense is rising up, the tax collector cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the verb, have mercy, literally means make an atonement. So what atonement is? Atonement is something that would satisfy the wrath of God. Now we picture this. When the tax collector hears the trumpet from the temple announcing that the lamb has been slaughtered and the incense is rising, he cries out, Do it for me! He cries out, God, let this one be for me. And his cry illustrates the core of becoming righteous. We're sinners. And in our own pursuit of total righteousness, in our own pursuit of satisfying the wrath of God, we are hopelessly helpless. We all need to cry out, let this atonement be made for me. You know, it makes no sense anymore to pretend to be righteous. It makes no sense anymore to make excuses for our own shortcomings. And it makes no sense anymore 
to distract our attention on our own issues by looking at other people's problems. Jesus, he says in the parable, two men went up to the temple, but only one went down justified. Justified? Are you kidding? Just crying out, let this atonement be made for me and I'm justified? Justified. As Billy Graham, he is really fond of putting it, just as I had never sinned. Amazing grace. How could it be? To be declared justified is to be declared by God to have done all that He has commanded on us. All because the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world, including mine and including yours. This is the Gospel. Two men went up to pray. One is sure and trusted his own righteousness, and the other is sure that he is in need, in desperate need of help, and it is he who goes down justified. You know, brothers and sisters, we all believe in it. We all believe in such amazing grace. Right? Justification by grace, we believe in it. But you know what? We don't always live like we believe in it. Let me take a test right now with you. And you know what I mean. And this test is not created by me. It's created by the late pastor and writer Robert Capon in, in the United States. In his book, The Parable of Grace, he asked us to imagine this. So now we imagine this, okay? Now the tax collector, he goes home justified. Then we take him back to the temple one week later and have him go back there with nothing, nothing in his life changed. No change at all. Walk him in this week as he walked walk in last week. After seven full days of still frauding and ripping off his fellow Jews, living luxuriously with high-priced high scotch and partying all night. Then, put him through the same routine. Eyes down. A breast beaten, uh, not looking up to heaven, and God be merciful and all that. Going through the same routine. He will do this week exactly what he did last week. What do you think it will happen? God will send him down justified. The question of this test is do you like it? Do you like it? you like that? And the answer, of course, is that we don't. It's not fair. This guy, he is abusing God's grace and is getting off free. Now let's do another test, okay? We take him back to the temple with at least some changes in his life. No partying after 2 a.m. Drinking cheaper scotch. And while still, still profiting from his fellow Jews, he donated some money to VCVC Mission Fund. Not bad. What do you think now? You feel better? At least he has something to report to God that he is making progress, right? Let's think this. If God does not count 
the impressive list of achievement of the Pharisees, why should God bother with this marginal achievement of the tax collector? Why? You know, why are we so bent on destroying the story of Jesus by sending the tax collector back for his second visit, only this time for him to have the Pharisee speech in his pocket? Why? It is not the progress of the tax collector that earns him forgiveness or the atonement. It is, as illustrated by Jesus' explanation to this parable a few verses later, it is a sense, it is a recognition of his helplessness that forms the basis of the tax collector's forgiveness. He threw himself on God's mercy acknowledging that God is full of compassion and will forgive sinners. He trusts that those who are written off elsewhere will be written in by God in the Gospel. So immediately after this parable, Jesus, he said something in verse 15 to 17. And it's to help all of us to understand this parable better. In this passage, some people brought some children to Jesus to have him touch them. And in verse 17, Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You know, we have misunderstood Jesus saying here badly. We always thought that children qualify for God's kingdom because they are innocent but I doubt the accuracy of this interpretation. Well, first of all, are all children all that innocent? Come on, I mean, for those, I mean, in English congregation, many of you serve in the children's ministry. You know better than I do. Right, Rosita? (laughs) We all know, right? Children, they're not all necessarily innocent. Some of them are quite... Oh, you know what I mean. eh? But but more important, if we have to become as innocent as children in order to enter the kingdom of God, then we are back to the problem of being justified by credit, by our own merit, instead of the grace and mercy of God. So the main point of being like a child is not about innocence but about a recognition, a sense of helplessness, and also recognizing that they are in need of help. They need people to help them. Be like children. In order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to have this sense, this recognition of helplessness that we would not even look up to heaven sometimes. And because of this sense of helplessness, we would rely on the grace and the mercy of God. We would cry out, let this atonement be made for me. And the whole Bible speaks about this this same concept. It is what God is pleasing is not how holy we look, but how much remorse we have towards our own unrighteousness. In Psalm 51, 
It says here, you, God, do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Where? Where are our broken and contrite hearts today? Our solution, our pursuit of righteousness begins with this broken and contrite heart. And, and it is this broken and contrite heart that enable, enables us to embrace the core of the gospel. That Jesus insists that we are already loved. That God is loved. And the love of God get rid, gets rid of our fear inside us. Our hollow inside us. And the need to be right all the time inside us. This cuts right to the core of Jesus' message. I mean, we become so easily deceived into thinking that we, we are loved because we are moral enough, we are good enough, we are right enough. But the good news, the gospel, is that we don't have to be good enough because simply, first, we won't be. And second, we don't have to do it on our own. Christianity is not a religion like a how-to-be-good-enough manual. No, we're not like that. Christianity is about salvation. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And this is salvation for us. Not just saving us from hell or from condemnation, but also saving us in this life from the need to putting up a false version of you and of me. The essence of Jesus' message is that we are saved by no more putting up a false self. The self that has to be good enough or impressive enough. We're saved by admitting our true self. That we are, in reality, not good enough. We are sinners. And that we can never do it on our own. But we can trust Him. We can trust Jesus that He has already done, done it for us on the cross at his death, his good will make us good enough. So we can all cry out, brothers and sisters, God, let this atonement on the hill of Calvary be made for us. Let us all pray together. Dear God of mercy, we give thanks to you. We thank you for bringing us into your kingdom by creating us in your image, by electing us as your people, by justifying us with the ransom paid by your beloved Son, Jesus, and by pursuing us while we wander off your path of righteousness. God, help us to fully embrace how long, how wide, how high, and how deep you love us. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.